As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rubona Podcast. I'm Musa Kwanga again and greeted by Ryan Hunt and Michael De Silva to discuss this week's action. There's been plenty of glory if you're a Barcelona fan, but also sadly a bit more tragedy uh, elsewhere in the football world. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's start with the Clasico and Barcelona's resounding 5-1 win over Real Madrid. Michael. Well, Suarez is back. Did he ever go away? Did he ever go away? <laughs> he never goes away. Yeah. Um, no, it was impressive by Barca. I mean, on current form, you have to say that they were expected to win, but they still have to go out and, and do it. And Real Madrid were completely out of sorts. And by the time this podcast goes out, maybe Lopetegui <laughs> would have gone. Um, talks of Conte coming in. But yes, yeah, it's, it's been a difficult time for him, to say the least. Interesting game, though, because the scoreline, you know, Barcelona won 5-1, but at one point it looked as if it could have ended up, you know, score draw, maybe 2-2. Modric mm. had a chance at the post. And the flow of the game was quite interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the first half, well, the first 10, 15 minutes, Barca exploded and just, you know, went 1-0 up really early um, and could have really put Real Madrid outside at half time, by half time, I thought. Right. And then, as you said, the second half... Real Madrid made a change, Varane came off injured and they went to three at the back and kind of just seemed to abandon having any kind of midfield for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the yeah. second half. But actually, that was when they looked their most dangerous and really should have got level. Um, well, I thought Varane didn't have a very good game at all, to be honest. No, um, he really was quite poor. Yeah, he was. To be I'm honest, not I don't, to he's him. not been great this season as 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 a whole. Uh, he's yeah. had moments, but he's not having his best season. Two bad mistakes back to back. Yeah, and diving yeah. in for that penalty was uh, uncharacteristic. Mm. But I would also say about Varane, it's funny because Cruz hasn't been his best either. Mm. And it's funny looking at Real Madrid now, you're really seeing the core of that Champions League winning squad who are still pulling out the performances. So Modric actually was really quite good the other day. I thought Marcelo, <laughs> Marcelo is quite funny because he's been their main goal threat. <laughs> and the funniest thing, uh, the situation that Madrid are in now that really captured it, was that Marcelo, I think he scored with his right foot. And in the first half, his best effort was with his right foot. So you've basically got a left back mm. with his wrong foot being Real Madrid's greatest attacking threat. Well, I mean, it was always going to be so tough to replace Ronaldo, but to lose to Dan at the same time as well. Um, these are just two massive figures of this football club, which 
we shouldn't underestimate. We can't just say, oh, well, Bell can, can step up now. Mm. And that's it. <laughs> I mean, very I thought Bell, Bell was just his, uh, I thought his body language was was telling. Like he wasn't getting, when he wasn't getting the ball, he was like flinging his arms around and just had his head bowed. Um, I thought it was a bit concerning. I think it was very shrewd from Zidane to move on when he did. Oh, without a doubt. You know, I think he was well aware of the how um, this squad wasn't progressing at the level that it needed to to continually challenge in the league because that's that's where their focus has had to shift to because they've not been genuinely contending for the league, you know, despite winning the Champions Leagues. Mm. Um, and I think he... He knew that there was made, like I think we said last week, or Michael said that there was major surgery needed on the squad, and and I think he picked a. You're seeing that now, and he picked the perfect time to move on. So, I mean, I feel a little bit sorry for Lopetegui in one sense. Um, I'm kind of split on it. I don't think he should have taken the job in the first place. And when he did go, I think we were we were talking about him being an odd candidate for the job mm. with his um, lack of top level club management experience. Um, and you're kind of seeing that the results of that now I mean it seemed odd at the time it's not really panned out very well and he doesn't really have the the managerial credit at club level to buy time really do you know what I mean it's always easy to say it's the coach's fault but should Florentino Perez done a bit more to bring in a big name to replace Ronaldo do you think well we were talking about it before we came on air about how they seem to not really commit to either strategy yeah. to replace him with a massive name yeah. or like reset and be like, right, we really develop these ne- these new crop of young players over the next couple of years. Well, I see similarities between Real Madrid and Bayern actually, where there's a lack of investment in the squad, resting on their laurels to an extent and just expecting success to come rather than investing when you're at the top of your game, like we've seen with City. Um and we did a podcast recently on the troubles that both of those teams are going through. But um, yeah, like I think it's easy to just paper over the cracks and say, oh yeah, well, it's the coach's fault. No, it's not. I mean, what's changed in the last three or four months at Real Madrid is seismic. Mm. Um, Ronaldo and Zidane are not replaced easily. So yeah. I think a big problem as well for Madrid is the lack of gravitas, not just the experience. So you look at uh, Ramos's recent comment, and Ramos actually had an appalling game against yeah. Barcelona. had an appalling game. He came out afterwards in relation to Lopetegui and said, look, it's not just about tactics, it's about coaching individuals, managing the dressing room. <laughs> Effectively admitting, I'm a, I'm a bit of a handful <laughs> and I need someone that reigns me in, which is kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of what you're saying, really. If you're saying, you're, you know, you're a senior player, you've won four Champions Leagues, you take responsibility yourself. So I think it was funny that Ramos came out and said that, but it really speaks to the point that Madrid needs a particular type of ego. Mm. And you can't arrive at a job like Lopetegui did where Madrid is kind of your finishing school, final destination. Someone like Antonio Conte will walk into that dressing room if he gets the job and will be unafraid of the pressures there. This is also excellent news for Neymar because Real Madrid is in need of a saviour in a way that was not in need of a saviour just four four months ago. So if Neymar is to make the transition to Real Madrid at some point, the stage is really set for him, I think. Mm. See, well, I'm not really convinced that Conte is the guy for that, though. And I, I, I don't, I, I might be completely wrong, but it just doesn't seem an amazing fit for me. Because, as I said, because they haven't really committed either way, 
they have got a lot of really, really difficult personalities in that dressing room and a lot of players who, you know, what Zidane was so good at, whether he's tactically sound or not, you're going to listen to Zinedine Zidane because he's Zinedine Zidane. Mm. He's got a real history with that club. He's achieved at that club. He's won World Cups. He's won European Cups. And he's most, he would have been most of that squad's poster on the wall of their bedroom kind of mm. thing. Someone like Conte, I think you saw it at Chelsea that, you know, the, the season they won the league at Chelsea, they had no European competition. And Hazard said something about how actually boring training sessions were because he had so much time to work with them that he was literally standing them still in positions of being like, when this happens, you need to be here. When this happens, you need to be here. Now, you know, that, I've not... that's the last thing Real Madrid need. Exactly. Right and, yeah. I th- and then the season after they won the league, when they were combining that with the Champions League, they had a dreadful season. So if Real Madrid had moved on the rest of the aging squad and really committed to a new crop of youngsters, I think Conte would be a really, really good fit. I just don't think they're in either side at the moment. And I, I mean, it might be amazing. You unless, never unless, unless Conte is being brought in to provide shock therapy. In yeah, which maybe. case, this is the thing, because if you look at the circumstances in which Conte left Chelsea, frustrated the lack of investment, it would seem interesting to me if Conte hadn't said to Perez, look, I know this is the show that you're running, but I'm going to need money. This is my assessment of the squad so far. Obviously, the squad is in decline. Obviously, players are aging. Obviously, people like Ramos are in decline. You know, your best players are not performing their level. Will you back me with funds? And if I happen to fall out with X, Y, Z, Will you back me? Because you wonder, like, does this make sense? Yeah, it's, like prox- the, uh, it's like the Fabio Capello approach. Mm. Thank you. Is this a proxy war? Because Yes, exactly. Because Real have had a player like, a manager like Conte before they had Capello in 97. They brought him from, uh, from, from Serie A. And are they looking to do the same kind of thing, a bit of a reset? You know, they're looking across at Valverde and Valverde has been delivering at league level. In fact, Barcelona at league level have been delivering. Luis Enrique, Valverde... And Perez is thinking we also need to be a league side. We need a guy like Conte to run things for three, four years. And these players, these senior players in Madrid dressing room, their time is kind of coming to an end. So this is the time to kind of bring in someone who will flush them out. Well, I'm not going to have the casting vote on whether Conte will be a success at Real Madrid or not. But I do want to mention Barcelona. I was really, really impressed with Arthur. He I'm was, glad you mentioned him. He's he so was good. Unbelievable. He's so good. I, I was just watching him for... I think it was still, I think it was still 1-0. I was just watching how he, he's so calm and he's so like, I mean, you're not going to get an Iniesta, but for someone who's just stepped into the team, it's, they've done pretty well there. Well, the comparisons with Xavi, and I want to just mention yeah. this as well. I'm glad you mentioned it. There was a moment when Arthur played, it was in the first, or Arthur, I'm not sure how to pronounce, mm. the moment in the first half where he gets possession and he's pursued by three or four rail players and there's a chance to make a counter-attack, but none makes the run for him. And this beautiful moment, he basically weaves left, weaves right, yeah. turns, pivots, and plays it back to the centre-back. And I was like, yes. Yeah. Because you watch him, and if you contrast his use of the ball with Coutinho's use of the ball, and mm. Coutinho is over-elaborate, wasteful, and you're like, my goodness, Arthur he, he, he's a disciple of Xavi, actually. He, gets, he gets the bus away, doesn't he? You can see it immediately. He's, he, I can imagine him being in that midfield for years to come. And he looks like he's already been there for years. Right. That's the thing. Yeah, he's been a great signing. He looks um, like he was La Masia trained. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of the Barca midfield, I think Sergio Busquets needs a massive shout because he was brilliant again yesterday. And he's, yeah. he's consistently brilliant in Classicos. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was captain yesterday as well in Messi's absence, which I was a little bit surprised at, actually. I kind of assumed PK would get it, but apparently 
Sergio is next in line, but he was really, really good. I thought Rafinha was really good as well. Yeah, Rafinha's come in for yeah. the last couple of games. Well, he came in in the week for Messi. Yeah. And a lot of people expected Dembele to come in. And I yeah. think it was a brave shout from Valverde, but he's been, he's performed in both games. He was brilliant in the Champions League against Inter. Yeah. And he was really good yesterday. Rafinha did a kind of Matuidi. You know, when Matuidi was brought in as a sort of wide forward for France mm. and was fantastic, a sort of mm. defensive wide forward so he could get forward, but also shored down the flanks. Mm. And this is what Rafinha did, the kind of Matuidi role. And I loved him against Inter. I thought he was terrific in that game. He just gives you so much intensity, technique. He never over-elaborates on the ball, which allows you to bring on your kind of more flamboyant winger, like, yeah. you know, more sort of destructive attacking force like Dembele was in the later period. And also, before I forget, shout out to Rakitic, because Rakitic gets an incredibly hard time from Barcelona Twitter. I don't understand it's why. It's so weird. It's yeah. so weird. His ball over the top for... It was when Suarez hit the post. The crossfield yeah. pass, right? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so good. Delicious. He's so, so good. And Suarez, I think it was nine nine goals in 11 Clasicos now for yeah. Suarez. And Sid Lowe actually described uh, Suarez's header as a yeah. shot that happened to be, be with, with his, his head. head. <laughs> yeah. Well, as that actually on that goal, as that was unravelling, as soon as um, Sergio Roberto hit that pass, I just I was like, what a terrible pass. Oh, it's in. Yeah. It was like, it just looked like a completely, like, I was like, why are you giving it him there? Oh, he's somehow managed to direct that in. It was yeah. really odd. This is going to sound quite sort of a weird reference, but the goal it reminded me of was Van Basten's header against Real Madrid in the Champions League semi or the European mm-hmm. Cup semi. I think it was 1990. They beat Real 5-0. Sorry, Real listeners. Um, another five goal drubbing. Uh, just skip it on a little bit. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it was um, the 5-0 in the first leg, I think, of the European Cup semi. Mm. And Van Basten gets a similar pass where it comes to him at a certain height and he just angles his neck back and puts it in the top corner. And it looks, when you first see the power of it, from a distance, you'd be like, that must have been a bicycle kick. Yeah, because there's something, the sheer power on the header. There's something really aesthetically pleasing about headers that are uh, connecting with passes that are still on the rise, yep. kind of, you from know, a distance. Or, or, yeah. or very level. But um, we're 10 games into the La Liga season now, but Alaves are still second, a point behind, just a point behind Barca. And Real Madrid are, are, are seven points behind Barca now in ninth. Getafe, Levante, Valladolid, Espanyol, and Alaves are all above Real Madrid. Wow. And I think I think it's probably inevitable he's going to go, right? Yeah. It's funny because a Clasico is often a kind of state of the nation in relation to La Liga. <laughs> and this is a really interesting state of the nation, I think. But, but saying that, though, I mean, if you look at the kind of breakdown of the stats... It wasn't really that, it, it wasn't a, a drubbing, you know what I mean? It was just, you could, the, the difference I think there was what Barcelona did when they had possession and how they, what they did. Like Real Madrid had more chances, you know, for example, and, you know, possession was fairly even. I think it was like 52, 53, 47. It, it wasn't a drubbing, but it was a cleansing. Yeah. It was definitely a cleansing. Well, there was that, in that period when Real Madrid had in this first bit of the second half and they kind of looked like they didn't know what to do with all their possession and there wasn't really, they weren't very clinical mm. at all. One thing I will say, because we, we'll move on, but there's one moment I will, th- I was looking at Modric's face at one point when he hit the post with the shot, it could have been 2-2 and it reminded that 50 Cent song, like if I can't do it, it can't be done. And I was just like, poor Modric, he's just like, you know, no, really poor Modric. He's like, I have to carry this midfield. Like the amount of loose passes that came out of other unnamed Tony Cruz midfielders in that game. People are going to start thinking we've got some kind of sweepstake on what we can drop in as a reference throughout the season. You know what I mean? Listen, who, listen. Had, who had a fiver on 50 cent? Well done. Well done. Listen, that, I promise that'll be the last 50 cent reference I'll make in relation to Real Madrid on this podcast. <laughs> 
I suppose we move from the glory of Barcelona to, unfortunately, the tragedy of Leicester. So it took a while for the news to come out to be confirmed, but it's sad to um, to note that the Leicester owner, Wichai Suratnaprabha, has sadly passed away with four other members of the uh, the crew, um, the helicopter crash outside Leicester City Stadium. Yeah. Very, uh, very sad. And some members of um, the Leicester City board were on the, the plane as well, we believe. Oh, and his daughter, the, uh, right? Yeah. Helicopter, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I, think it's, I think five died in total yeah. shortly after takeoff. Yeah, it's obviously hugely shocking news. And, you know, he'll forever be remembered for being the man behind this incredible sporting fairy tale and the biggest in football, probably the biggest in sport, in, in my view. Um, obviously, Ranieri was the coach, but this was the man who, who not only bankrolled it, but created a a... A, a great atmosphere at Leicester, you know, and I don't think that every, anything that they achieve would be possible without the environment that he fostered. Um, so it's a great loss to, to football. I will say about Leicester, like one thing that struck me, I, I visited just the once, there was a festival I attended there, and what really struck me was, you, you know, from the moment you get off the train and mm. just start walking around, how diverse it is. Mm. And it really is incredible because the the team itself that year, it was a team of diverse talents and nationalities and there was a real sense of unity and a real community feel about it. And it, it felt like, you know, it was funny, like when I went to Leicester, I remember thinking, it's funny because a talent doesn't need a team that's good because it's got so much community already. <laughs> yeah. And what was incredible, the Leicester team, you know, winning obviously the championship and the Premier League, it seemed to embody that community so much. Mm. And I think the reason people are feeling this so much is because, you know, this owner was someone who, connected yeah. even though he came from outside he he seemed to get the club exactly. really fast yeah and he didn't take money out of the club like we've seen with so many foreign investors you know yeah it wasn't done as a as a just an investment for him you right know? it seemed to be something a lot more you know even when he took him over eight years ago yep. got them into the premier league managed to keep them in the premier league that year that it looked like they were absolutely certain to go down yeah invested really smart in you know scouting and yeah. staff and stuff like that and then as a neutral that wave of the year they won the league seeing it start to unfold and kind of be like oh this could actually happen <laughs> it's but on. it's not gonna really happen it was like everyone was kind of th- i think thinking they're gonna fall apart at the end of yeah. the season and it was just honestly one of the most incredible things i've ever seen yeah and I think that I, I, I'm kind of struggling for the words a little bit because it's just really sad. It's been a really, really horrible week, I think, for outside of football as well. There's been a lot of stuff going on yeah. continually. Mm. We look to football as, as a really famous quote. I can't remember who said it. It's like it's not war or death or famine. It's something outside of that. And it's kind of like what we go to to escape a lot of the stuff that goes on. Yeah. And to see such a horrible tragedy happen within that world so soon after a lot of the stuff that's been going on this week i think it kind of made it not that anything like this is is isn't bad anyway but it just it it yeah it just it was like a roll-on effect and it's just so sad yeah it is i agree with that and it is really sad and it's a it's also a really really sad end to the incredible lester story that he started and has now unfortunately as it has ended in such a sad circumstances yeah i mean i think obviously we we all want to send thoughts out to anyone who's been affected by it. And obviously, even if you don't know them personally, just being a Leicester fan or being around the club, it's going to hit pretty hard. So I think it's just, yeah, it's just really sad. Yeah, I want to. I just want to echo all of that. I mean, it's such a painful thing because, 
you don't want, you know, you would not wish this on anybody. And for it to happen to the owner of a club and the, the story, the Leicester story, it just seems such a cruel twist of fate, mm-hmm. actually. It, it seems so, so unfair and so cruel because such a small percentage of helicopters actually crash. And for this to happen to, to, to somebody that did so much, not only for Leicester, but for any club that's ever dreamed of breaking into that, you know, oligopoly of like five or six clubs that always seem to win all the major trophies to have Leicester up there and to put that it's just it's a cruel cruel moment so obviously yet to all Leicester fans listening and all sympathizers um just unbelievable terrible news and Mm. on behalf of everyone yeah condolences all around awful we should probably say as well like you know um happened not long after it was reported that Glenn Hoddle had suffered a heart attack after being on air at BT Sport. Yeah. Yeah. And he suffered a, a massive heart attack and only survived by the quick thought of um, a BT cameraman who knew how to use a defibrillator. Um, and of course, Glenn Hoddle is uh, not only an England legend, but a Spurs legend and um, someone who my my dad used to tell me all about um, his natural talent. And um, I'm slightly too young to, to remember him playing. But um, yeah, he's uh, it, it's very welcome news that he. Um, he's responding well to treatment and hopefully we'll uh we'll make a recovery yeah definitely should we take a break i think we should on that note back from the break and before we get into the bundesliga i met with michael Ballack recently the uh germany legend 98 caps by munich hero as well um, and he was talking to me about, well, a few things, but the, uh, the 50 plus one rule was, uh, an interesting element of the interview talking about club ownership and how, how the Bundesliga needs to, needs to adapt. But perhaps we can take a quick listen to that now. Yeah, it's, it's uh, going in the, in the wrong way in Germany the, because no one wants uh, a champion who actually knows everyone after the third or fifth uh, uh, yeah, a game, you know, and uh, this is something we don't want. It's no competition, and uh, of is course, it, is it a danger? Do you think for German football that this happens? Yeah, for the fans, you know, for for that uh, for the attraction and, and, and for the for everything. Yes, for the for the brand uh, Bundesliga in general, um, because if you know the the champion before, it's not helpful. Uh, so, but it's difficult because they're doing a good job, Bayern Munich. They're doing a really good job. So it's a competition, it's an open market, and uh, we have to blame the other teams because of not being good, ha- good enough, working hard enough, having the right answers, or being con- competitive enough uh, to challenge Bayern Munich. You know, we can't blame Bayern Munich for being fantastic and doing a good job. But um, compared to the Premier League, yeah, there's investors coming in. There's uh, um, some of the clubs, they have this advantage over the last years and there were less, uh, recently, less teams who actually played for the title. Now it's five or six teams, they playing for a title. It's also because money comes in, investors coming in, knowledge comes in, more qualities come, 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 comes into the league and that helps the competition. So we should also uh, talk about the 50 plus one rule in, in, in Germany, oh, which we end up by death. I mean, I mean, if you talk about um, um, yeah, history, what, what fans like, you know, they love, or tradition, let's call it tradition, because uh, fans love, uh, it, it starts with the, 
kickoff time. You know, they were complaining over think about changing kick. We changed that. They were complaining, but they accept that now because it makes it more flexible. Also, it's also everything has advantage and disadvantage. Then we talk about tradition in terms of uh, um, <clears throat> stadiums. Uh, then uh, tradition in terms of the, how many teams should be in the league, and and so. Germans are really traditional, they love, and, and I love it too, but we have to adapt to international competition. And uh, uh, we have our local league, which means the Bundesliga, but if we have a problem in our league themselves, which means there's no competition for, for the title anymore, maybe we should open us and, and think about, might be changes or bringing more, how we can bring more competition in. And that's... Uh, we end up in, in, in a 50 plus one rule. I think it's um, it's it's one of the could be one of the solutions, you know. But uh, yeah, if we carry on like that, we will maybe see the next five or ten years another champion, which called Bayern Munich. I found that like a really great segment and a really well argued case for reform. I mean, before I heard it, I was thinking, nah, like it's Germany, like stick to your guns. Like, you know. <laughs> But I see his point. In order to create great competition you know, in in the Bundesliga, that maybe there does need to be some form of a change, maybe just better regulation of new owners, but... Yeah, it's a tricky yeah. one. I mean, there's a, a real balance that that is is being struck at the moment in Germany, but it's obviously not working. I mean, Balak has got a point. Bayern are winning the, the, the Bundesliga every single year. And we've always said that other teams need to get better and they need to be more professional, just not on, not just on the pitch. They need to be better run in every um, facet of what they do. But the 50 plus one rule, in my opinion, it served its purpose. And there is a way of um, regulating German football without it going down the slippery slope towards the Premier League model. And there's a middle ground to be had there, but there's a bit, you know, there's, there's, there's strong arguments on both sides, but I can definitely see that the 50 plus one rule in the not too distant future being no more. This is a bit of a sore subject for me at the moment because I'm sure people are aware, like um, Stan Kroenke has just activated the compulsory purchase of the rest of the Arsenal shares to become full owner. Mm. And there was a really good piece actually by Rory Smith on the New York Times website where he contacted a load of uh, Arsenal fans who had had shares in their family for years. Yeah. You know, they basically got a letter through the post just being like, you know, you have to sell your shares. It was about more than the money for them. It was about actually feeling that you're part of your football club that you support. And I think that even though it's not a diff, it's not exactly the same model as, is it with the 50 plus one rule? It's more of a fan consortium that you buy a membership of. Yeah, exactly. But still, I think that's a really, really important model that needs to be tweaked maybe as opposed to abandoned. So I wonder if there's like a, a, a middle ground where they can achieve more competition or open it up to wider investment, but still maintain that strong fan element. Because in my opinion, that's one of the strongest facets of the Bundesliga. Mm. Well, speaking of the Bundesliga, let's uh, talk about the uh, let's talk about the action that we saw this weekend. The one of the results that stood out to me the most was Leverkusen. I mean, they beat Bremen in their backyard six two. It was unbelievable. And the first half, like uh, for all of the amazing attacking play we've seen from Borussia Dortmund this season, I would say that Leverkusen's performance was right up there with that kind of you know intensity, high octane, like you know just. Swashbuckling, swashbuckling style, um, and yeah, Julian Brandt I thought was great. Bellarabi, interesting stat with Bellarabi. He scored again, um, and he he scored now three times in the last nine days, 
Um, so his previous three goals came across 350 days. That's crazy. Um, so it just shows the kind of form he's coming back into finally. And Leverkusen, you know, they're the team that I thought would push Bayern the closest this year. Um, I thought Dortmund was still a work in progress and would take them another year. Um, whereas Leverkusen seem to have all of those pieces coming together more quickly. Um, and they just have endured this terrible start. But yesterday, um, or Sunday, sorry, was a reminder of um, of what they're capable of. We've been kind of waiting for them to click, haven't we? Yeah. Um, I mean, their front four on paper is so fun. Brandt, Kai Havertz... Kevin Folland, Leon Bailey. Um, yeah, when well, I mean Leon Bailey yeah. hasn't been starting every game, right? I don't think. Yeah, Leon Bailey has 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 struggled for form. Yeah, um, and Bellarabi as well. But Bremen have been in really good form. I mean, they've won five out of the last six. It's a huge win to win at Bremen in the form they're in is yeah. huge, especially in Bremen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was great to see. It was great to see that Bayern got a win. They're playing. They're, they're kind of winning ugly at the moment, which is I think they'll take that in Munich at the moment. Um, it occurred to me that Kovac is kind of similar in some ways to Mourinho in the, in this playing style. Um, in the, well, it's, it's which era Mourinho <laughs> early, earlier era, let's oh. say, but it's, it's, because it, it's it can be very effective and we saw it with Eintracht Frankfurt. It's not a criticism by the way. Um, it's, 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 a dependence on a on a, a really really strong defence um, and turning the ball over quickly and I don't I just don't think that Kovac has been supported by the Bayern board as much as he deserves to be. If you're going to hire someone like him, you need to support him in the transfer window, and they haven't. But I do think that there is um, I do think there's potential for Bayern under Kovac, um, yeah. but it's not going to be the free flowing football that we saw. Under Jupp Heynckes, for and example. it wouldn't be Mourinho. It wouldn't be a good Mourinho comparison if there was not a casualty of um, the club's most flamboyant and exciting player, Hamas Rodriguez. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely yeah. Well, that's true. And for me, it's crazy that Rodriguez could, is is being left on the bench. I mean, I think he started two games this year, maybe three, um, and he's he was the most important player under Jupp Heynckes last year. He was so good, and we all know his talent. We've seen him um, before Bayern. Um, and for him to be left out is crazy. But as long as Bayern are winning, and they have only won two games, you know, last couple of games unconvincingly, but Hammers might might struggle to get his place back. I do feel sorry for him because he was on this it's a two-year loan, I think it yeah. was, and he had a difficult time at Madrid, was left out of the Champions League final by Zidane, and really fought to get back to form and to prominence mm. and he did it and he, he's not done anything wrong and absolutely he's I mean, it's yeah wild. it's crazy i feel sorry for for him but yeah i mean after the ix game he stormed out 10 minutes after full time whistle backpack on straight in the <laughs> straight in the car so yeah he's he's obviously not happy at the moment um but Bayern are up to second now and it's starting to look a little bit more familiar in the bundesliga only two points behind dortmund who drew to hertha yeah, we've got with Hertha, sorry. We've, we've got a, a huge classica coming up, you know, Borussia Dortmund versus versus Bayern Munich. Um and that's on the tenth of November. I believe we've got someone have we got someone going to that? <laughs> yeah, I'll be going to that. Oh. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, so in my opinion, the biggest classic of for years, for for many years. I mean, there was one last season when Dortmund were threatening to 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 be up there, but um, in the end they tailed off. But Dortmund are actually delivering this year. However, they drew two two with Hertha, and that was a not a surprise because Hertha had been good. But Dortmund missed a few opportunities to put that game to bed. 
Who We've scored got... for Dortmund? Jaden okay. Sancho. Oh, there he is. Sancho Corner. <laughs> Time for this week's show. We should get a jingle for Sancho Corner. <laughs> you should make one. Should make yeah, a should we do one? Should we... I'm just saying, yeah, no podcast is complete without appreciation. <laughs> can we see, when Sancho. you go to the Classica, can you try and get Jaden to record... Now it's time for Sancho Corner or something like that. For you, I'll do it, right? Thanks, mate. We'll <laughs> chop it in somehow. And for me. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, on, on Dortmund's form this season, providing they don't get absolutely knackered and, and their form drops off a cliff, I think that the, it could come down to the two classicers, really. Well, if you know, you say that's a big if, by the way. Under Lucien Favre, teams have got a history of um, self-destructing get, after a season. Yeah. They usually get one good year, though. Yeah, they do. Of, you know, they do. So still... And there's some legs in, um, you know, Sancho, Pulisic and these young guys up front. Royce looks to be struggling at times. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like the oldest one there, right? And he's, what is he, 27, 28? Yeah, yeah. Sancho, by the way, he got two goals, but the other one was kind of a steal off Royce. I don't know if it was going in. I think the ball looked like it was rolled. Maybe was it going wide? I think it was going wide. No, I okay. think it was going in, but it was going very slow. It was going, yeah. So Sancho just, just it over made with. sure, yeah. yeah. But yeah, two more goals for him and unbelievable goals, assists. He's exciting. He beats defenders for fun. I felt really sorry for Mittelstadt, the um, Hertha left back. He was he, he just got twisted, turned inside yeah, out. He didn't have fun. Um, and it will be the same next week when, um, or this this Saturday when when Dortmund play Wolfsburg. Two goals for Solomon Kalou, rolling back the years. <laughs> you know, look, head to balance with the blue and white stripes of Brighton and the resilience they, they showed against Dortmund because it was an onslaught. You know, very Brighton been playing this year, you know, yeah. very disciplined, very compact. And her to absorbed, you know, with a bit of luck, yeah. so much pressure. I mean, Dortmund have blown away most teams. Well, this is my theory on Hertha, why they get these results against the big teams, because they set up um, with defence in mind first. Mm. That's why for the last couple of years under Paul Dada, they've been accused of being boring, and rightly so, because they have been. But um, now they've added that little bit of flair. They've got guys like Lazaro, Kalu and um, uh, Ibizovic up top who can always score. Um, and against the big teams, they can get results because they know how to set up. Consistency is their problem. So when they play the likes of Freiburg and, you know, no disrespect, but um, Dusseldorf and Nuremberg, they can't always get those results. And if they could just turn those defeats and draws into victories, they'd be a, even higher. Um, but I think they're moving in the right direction there to build an interesting team. And by the way, I should just mention that Solomon Kalou's two goals made him the highest scoring Ivorian in Bundesliga history. Oh, he looked absolutely knackered after that first one. He was so tired, he couldn't even get up to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, he was lying face down on the turf. Just leave me be. Yeah. <laughs> yep, skipping, since I've mentioned Brighton, let's skip across to the home of their origin. Let's go to the Premier League. Yeah. And let's just quickly start with their win, because I've mentioned, uh, maybe on the podcast, but also off it, the fact that Wolverhampton Wanderers, their victims the other day, don't score many goals, and Brighton beat them 1-0. And actually are looking like almost the new Watford in the sense of winning close games, really well organised and finishing decisively. So Brighton are the new Watford and Watford are the new Leicester. Watford, new Bournemouth. But weren't, oh, sorry. But weren't Wolves <laughs> the new... I can't the programme. Can't so, but but weren't Watford the new Wolves, but Wolves were the new Watford at one point? <laughs> I never said that. Watford the Spanish okay. Betis. What? <laughs> Hang on. I think you, the point have, is that Brighton are good at home and Brighton that's three consecutive wins for them in the English top flight. First time they've done that since 1981. Oh, stat. Yeah. Um, that's a great stat. 
Yeah, and under Chris Hewton, I mean, it's no surprising that two of those games were at home because they are so resilient at home these days. But Chris Hewton makes teams hard to beat and Brighton are no pushovers. They're so established in the Premier League now. They just feel like a fixture. There was a point when Ipswich, Ipswich in the old sort of um, second division, were basically always solid mid-table. Mm. There was a period about 10 years in the sort of late 80s to sort of mid-90s. You could just draw a line across the the second division table and you'd find Ipswich there. Yeah. And I think that Brighton have that same sense of permanence about them now in the Premier League. Just well, the consistency, the kind of... This is only their second season back though, right? Was it last season the first year they came up? Right, right. But they feel, this is what I'm saying, it feels like they're developing something really solid. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The way that Southampton had before, obviously they're struggling now. And considering where they've yeah. come from, right. I mean, it, it's really not that long ago before, uh, sorry, since they're sponsors on their shirt were skint and that's exactly what they were they had <laughs> they had no stadium no team the fans were traveling out of town to watch them play it's pretty amazing what's happened there can i just say one thing i really hope for brighton is i hope they develop a couple of great young players or bring a couple of players from a different league and then like have some big resale value just to get them do you know what i mean just to get mm-hmm. them like a big influx of cash because it won't necessarily come from Obviously, attendance is not the biggest stadium. I just hope Brighton get in a really great, you know, chunk of investment mm. for a player resale just to solidify the position because they're such a they're such an incredible addition to the Premier League. I yeah, feel. they are. I agree, and they're kind of a model for teams coming up right. on how to on how to do it. Um, speaking of teams coming up, I just want to mention Fulham. I mean, they really struggled. Um, they, I, you have to say that there's there's pressure now mounting on the coach. He got them up. Great credit for for bringing them through a difficult playoff final, but I think there was a real tactical naivety um, on the weekend. They were torn apart by a very very capable Bournemouth team. There's no doubt in that. But um, they went so attacking. They just, I think, I think he just thought, well, if we just go for it, then we, you know, attack is the best form of defence or something. But in reality, it was just so naive it was so naive and they got absolutely hammered um there was no cover at the back when Bournemouth scored uh, I can't remember which goal it was but you had three of their four defenders were their furthest forward on the pitch they're all over the place and uh, I fear a bit for um uh Jokanovic. 28 goals they've conceded already this season by far the most in the Premier League. Yeah. And you know, the stats show if you change your coach, I don't want him to be fired. I think he did a great job getting them up. But the stats show if you fire your coach before Christmas, you double your chances of staying up. Get arsed and I there. just I just made that stat up. But <laughs> the job that Darren Moore did at West Brom with only a few games to go, you know, yeah. almost kept them up. And Fulham are they're a good squad. There are great players there. The problem mm. I think is the underinvestment in the defenders because they're making errors both individual and collective. So there is a systemic problem there. There's a tactical problem. But the problem is as well that the individual players in defence aren't as good as the ones in midfield. Like there isn't an equivalent in defence of a of a Seri. You know, Seri's a fine midfielder, but you need... The exactly. And you've got it. guys like Schürrle who have done it at the top level playing in attack. And, but and Mitrovic started the season really well. But defensively, I don't want to name names, but they are poor. Very poor. And that has to be sorted out quickly. Fulham with new investment and the right manager coming in and I don't again I don't want the guy to be sad I'd rather he turned around but with investment actually crucially in defence and a fresh injection of ideas whether from the current manager or a new one they could still turn that around and also can I just say it's a great job for anyone it's a great job this thing a Premier League management job puts you on the radar yeah 
and it's a win-win. You, you manage at Fulham, you play some exciting football, you either get to stay on or you get to look elsewhere. Nip across the river, talk about Chelsea. Absolutely. Ross Barkley, what a performance. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, he's, he's re- I mean, I'm so, so happy for him because he endured such a difficult time in towards the tail end of his his period at, at Everton and it, it was um, quite horrific, some of the things he had to put up with. Um, and he's decided to make a big move, a brave move down to Chelsea. Um, one that raised a lot of eyebrows when he did it, but Sarri has seen a player or seen the player, which we all saw a few years ago and the potential that he has. And he's fulfilling that now. He is fulfilling that. I mean, it's only a few games that he's done it, but he's shown that if he can be, if he can stitch together a few starts in the Premier League, he's capable of being an integral part of um, one of the best teams around. We've discussed this um, in relation to maybe writing something more about this in future, but Ross Barkley really is the number eight that we haven't had for a long time that, you know, Oxlade Chamberlain could also be, you know, this is the exciting thing from Mm. going from having like no number eights to succeed someone like Lampard. We now have two Mm. who play that role, that kind of driving forward, connecting midfield to attack, scoring goals, assisting goals. Yeah playing in the flow of the game of height, like a De, Bruy- a De Bruyne type. Do you know, physically, he reminds me a bit of Rebic from uh, Croatia. Oh, that's a good shout. Yeah, he's, he's he, I mean, he's, he is very skillful, Ross Barkley, and maybe he doesn't get enough credit for that. But, um, I mean, his pass for Murata's goal was sumptuous. For me, his technique is actually the supreme part of his game, and I was always excited about that. And my challenge, I said, not my challenge, but I think his challenge was always to bring other parts of his game to that level. And to hear Sarri come out, to hear Sarri come out and say that Barkley was now a complete player, that was a real surprise because that's, that's really fulsome praise. That's really fulsome praise. And Sarri's not the kind of person Mince's words. For him to say that after just a few months of working with Barkley mm. was incredibly encouraging, not only for Barkley and for Chelsea, but for England. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really exciting. And Another goal for Loftus-Cheek as well. Four in, th- four in two games. Yeah, a reminder to Sarri, perhaps, of well, his quality. I mean, he was looking like he wasn't going to get a look in, actually, at Chelsea under Sarri early on, and he's starting to play, which, and I think he's, his performances are warranting more game time, and that would be really good if you, if you, get, if you can get Barkley and Loftus-Cheek into that side regularly. Good I'm, for England as well. By the way, I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for Giroud. He, <laughs> he still hasn't scored, and he just was doing everything to score, and... Mm. But it's not, I, I mean, with him, it's not always about the goals, but ultimately he is a striker. He would be judged on that. Um, and he was making contributions, but he's becoming like the unluckiest striker in the Premier League. Well, the good thing is he's enabled so much for Chelsea this season that they're two points off the lead, even in a season where Morata has been streaky, even against yeah. Burnley. I mean, he missed a very presentable opportunity uh, as, as well as scoring a fantastic strike. You know, mm-hmm. he scored a great goal, but then missed a you know, very presentable chance. And Giroud has really knitted together that forward line yeah. the entire year, which is tremendous. And the great thing about him is with Giroud, the Chelsea fans love him mm. and the players obviously appreciate what he's doing. Hazard obviously loves him because he's enabled such great form yeah. and Sarri is a huge fan. So I think it's, you know, I think as long as, uh, as long as Giroud avoids the comment sections on YouTube, he'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, elsewhere, Palace drew 2-2 with Arsenal. Arsenal's winning streak comes to an end. I don't really want to talk about it because Arsenal were dreadful. How many have you won? 25 straight? They it? were dreadful. They were dreadful. It was. They were okay. No, 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 no. Let's get real. They were very, very poor, Arsenal. I mean, I very want... poor. Yeah. And to be honest, they didn't deserve more than the point. 
it was Mustafi going to Mustafi sliding in unnecessarily for a penalty, which he's, I think actually now Socrates is coming back to fitness. I think Mustafi will be the one to lose out. It seems that um, Emery really likes Rob Holding in the back four. He's he's um, a hothead. Yeah, I just don't think he's good enough to be a starting centre-back if, if you've got real... Um, ambitions on solidifying a top four place so I think mm. it will be Socrates and Holding will be the two until Koscielny's Koscielny's back in full training now I think um, so he'll be coming back soon. How long has Koscielny been out for now? Since the Atletico game in the Europa League last season was oh, where he right. ruptured his Achilles wow. um, and uh, yeah Man United won 2-1 everything's fine did they get to the ground on time? That's what I want to know Rumour has it Paul Pogba is still running up for his penalty um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> No, I look. I mean, I look, I'm, I'm very obviously very happy that we defeated Everton. And can I just say, look, for Arsenal listeners, a draw at Crystal Palace has been a good result in the Premier League for the last few years. So let's, you know. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be one of those points that I think um, is going to look quite good for both sides come the end of the season. Look, any Liverpool supporter listening to this podcast will tell you that a point at Crystal Palace is nothing to be. Well, Arsenal about. lost three 0 last season, so there we go. Yeah. You've made an, a huge advance. But quickly on United, we won't dwell too long because we often dwell on United on this podcast, but. Um, you know, it's really good to have a win. My one concern is I just worry that Paul Pogba is in danger of slightly undoing a lot of the great work he did over the summer. You know, the, the slow run up for the penalty and mm. the, the flicked pass, the, the, the flick he did, the unnecessary flick oh, that, that led awful. to the penalty. Yeah. For Everton. This is all needless. You remember that book, the Royal Dog book, Matilda, where Matilda basically <laughs> plays around. Who had Matilda in the sweepstakes? Listen, <laughs> £10. When, win. Like, when Matilda plays, <laughs> with the premise of that book, Matilda's, Matilda's this incredibly gifted student who makes all these kind of, makes, makes there's, there's work for idle hands because she's so gifted. She's so much more gifted than everyone else in the class. And she only stops, she cuts out the unnecessary parts of her game when she gets into a class where everyone else is as gifted as her. And Pogba playing for France, where everyone's on the same level, is great because he doesn't mess around. But playing for United, there's almost a sense of being the main attraction. And I, Is it just me though, or did all of that make sense? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Shout out to Anthony Martial. Yeah, I wanted to mention him. Martial, look, football historians will look back, and I think I've said this before, they will look back and they will not believe that a player of that quality did not go to the World Cup. Yeah. And that would be a damning indictment on the way he was coached last year. Yeah. Because it was really poor. Martial is someone you don't actually have to coach that much. You just have to enable a tactical system where he gets in the right position and he'll punish you. Yeah, it. surely it's not that hard. I mean, that finish for... The second goal was first time, just whipped it. It yeah. was great. And since he joined United, no United player has scored more goals than him. Oh, really? Yeah. And he and he's been in and out of so many games. You know, dropped to the bench, brought on with twenty to go. I mean, mm. he's been mismanaged. He did die for the penalty, though. Yes, he did. He cascaded. So the good and the bad. He cascaded. Of, uh, he cascaded. Tony Marshall. He died. <laughs> Back from my break, and before we close, let's have a final look around Europe. What's been happening? Brian? Le Classique happened at the weekend. Marseille, PSG in Marseille. PSG 1-2-0. It was very gritty. It was, wasn't it? There was bottles and all sorts being thrown yeah. onto the field towards the end. Mbappe came on, scored the first. Lovely goal, actually. Both goals were great, and Mbappe played a huge role in both. The finish for the first was fantastic. The second one, the ball that he played for Neymar... And Neymar was going for goal and Draxler just picked up the pieces at the far post, but it was all about that pass from Mbappe. You know, like when you when counter-attacks happen and you can always see the passes and if a player doesn't play the pass that you can see is on, you're like, why can't he see that? Yeah. That pass from Mbappe, he did me. 
And I was watching it and could yeah, see the whole yeah, thing yeah. from the... I was like, True. my eyes went the other way, even as the ball went. Yeah, he to played a pass that wasn't even on. I know. And it was it was so good. Yeah. It well, was really, really good. I love that people are picking up on that because I was uh, reading um, the Twitter feed of someone whose work I have great respect for. Uh, Kevin Williams at Kev V. Will. He's a great follow, Barcelona fan, just really knows his stuff. And he was saying how it was interesting that Barcelona had chosen Usman Dembele instead of Mbappe because... Dembele builds the play better, better associative players, they mm. say, as the Barca fans say. I think actually, and then, you know, I agree, I think that's a great assessment from Kevin, but I also think that a part of Mbappe's game that is underappreciated is his ability to make the play. And that's never better revealed than when you're running a counterattack. Because when you're running a counterattack, you've got two people running off you. There was a great example of that recently, actually, Mohamed Salah leading the counter. Um, and I think that what makes Liverpool so special, they've got three players equally good at leading the counter, Firmino, Mane and Salah. But I think... PSG now, you've got Neymar that can lead the counter and Mbappe too. Well, so that's best, a huge it's asset. It's the best forward line in Europe. Uh, they, they're not the best team in Europe, but those three. That's a big shout, actually. You know, I'm, I'm Sorry, I'm a bit now. shook. <laughs> we haven't had a hot take <laughs> like that for a while, actually. Uh, not <laughs> since, uh, what was it, Joe Gomez's new Varane. He's on better form than Varane at the moment. Yeah, he that's is. His yeah, 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 I don't look so stupid anymore. Uh, we, never, we, um, we have the greatest respect for your opinions. Let's uh, dart to Naples. Napoli won, Roma won. On paper, you'd think that that was a better point for Roma than Napoli. But yeah. overall, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think Napoli were the better side. They had a lot more chances. Insigne had a, uh, a few chances. Insigne is in amazing form yeah, at the is. moment. There's, there's a great piece... Um, on Insigne by James Horncastle, who was on last week's podcast um, on Insigne. It's on ESPN's website. You should you should read that. Yeah, I mean, um, he's he's incredible. Dries Merton came on, had two goals disallowed for offside and then equalised in the 89th minute. And um, yeah, I mean, not a bad point for Napoli. I mean, Roma haven't been, they've been kind of stuttering a little bit, but I think, yeah, important to get away with the point there. Before we run, Zlatan's playoff dreams are over. LA Galaxy needed to win yesterday against Houston Dynamo and were 2-0 up and lost 3-2. Well, I'd like so. to say about Zlatan, I mean, uh, Zach Goldman, who is someone who's a great follower on Twitter, I think his Twitter handle is Zachy Goldman, actually, if you check him out. Zachy, Z-A-C-K-Y, Goldman. Yeah. He said, look, even though the Galaxy had a terrible season, Zlatan had probably the greatest individual season in the history of the MLS. If you look at you know, goals and assists per 90 minutes. Well, this is the thing. The fact that they were even in a shout for a playoff place is staggering, considering right. where they were when he took over, when, when he came in, sorry. Well, kind of well when he took, took over. over. <laughs> it's Latin, he took over, yeah. <laughs> Player manager. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, next season, I think now that he'll, he'll be there, because he didn't, he, he joined after the start of the season. So I think um, if he, yeah, full, full season with them next season, they should be fine. Can I say as well to Zlatan, like, there is somebody that, restores prestige he did it for United and he did it for LA Galaxy and he is someone that has legacy in that sense he does give you a shot in the arm when you need it most as a club all good well that is a bumper edition thank you so much for joining us and uh, thank you for listening to Mr Balak's words please provide your comments the rest of that Q&A will actually be available on the Rabona site I believe yeah that's correct the uh the Q&A will be on the Rabona Mag website, rabonamag.com. A little bit of uh, housekeeping before we go. If you like the podcast, um, we're kind of, you know, we don't have a massive promo uh, campaign at the moment. So tell tell people, recommend it. And also if, it, if you listen to on iTunes, it would be great if you could drop a review and a rating. It, it really helps to yeah. build stuff. Always welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me again. Listeners, Michael, Ryan, always a joy. 
Find us on social media and all other platforms at Rabona Mag. And we'll catch you next week. Bye.